Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Good afternoon, Radio Free Brooklyn. You're listening to Objection to the Rule Live. It's July 1st. Coming up, we have big news. Trump will get to choose another Supreme Court justice. Often the swing vote, Justice Anthony Kennedy announced he is retiring. Only four years younger than his fellow justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, Kennedy is known for upholding the Muslim ban and diminishing the power of unions. We'll talk about the effects of his removal, or I'm sorry, his his leaving office. Plus, Ocasio-Cortez, an inexperienced and unlikely socialist candidate who spent less than 10% of the veteran incumbent Joe Crowley, a dominant force in Queens politics, won a breathtaking victory. We'll talk about the impact of socialist progressive politics. We'll also have special guest Sarah Kuttner in the studio. Coming up later, she'll talk about forensic psychology. This is Objection to the Rule. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Objection to the Rule. It's July 1st, 2018. I'm Ori Givens, joined in the studio with Violet Barron. Hey, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? We've got our intern, Ellie, in the studio. Hello. Hi, how are you? And we've got a special guest. Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Kuttner. Um, I'm here today to talk about forensic psychology. I'm clear, I'm currently in the MA forensic psychology program as a forensic, um, forensic psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and I'll be getting my degree this summer. So I'm happy to be here with you all. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. We have, we're going to have a conversation with you about what exactly forensic psychology is mm-hmm. later on in the show. I'm kind of interested. I've, I've heard about it, but it's one of those things. It's like, I feel like we have this concept of it and then there's like right. the reality of it. So I'm really excited Absolutely. to get into that conversation. <laughs> Let's get into our topics. We're going to start off with national news first. And the big story this week, one of the big stories is Justice Anthony Kennedy announcing this week that he's stepping down from the Supreme Court. It's causing a flurry of discussion on who will be his replacement and whether the new justice will shift the court even more to the right. Recent rulings from the court, such as the case of the Colorado Baker and the Janus case that stopped unions from charging dues to non-union members were seen as an indication of the court's more conservative lean. President Trump nominated Neil Gorsuch to the court after Republicans stalled the pick during Obama's term a couple years ago. So since Kennedy is considered a moderate and oftentimes swing vote on the panel, replacing him with a more conservative jurist has pundits thinking that more liberal decisions like Roe v. Wade or even marriage equality cases could be challenged and overturned. So let's start out with what you think the impact might be. There have been a lot of think pieces about what this new pick could be. There are several different um, potential nominees, and we'll get to those in a moment. But what do you think the impact of this second pick that President Trump will have on the court will be. Right. I think like the immediate reaction is it can't be good for progressives or for um, for a lot of um, the major Supreme Court decisions in the past 50 years that have given more rights to more populations in the U.S. Um, something interesting about Kennedy was always that although he was Reagan's conservative pick during his time in office, he was a deciding swing vote in a lot of cases. Um, and it's 
it's unclear and it seems unlikely that a new pick could be similarly swing vote. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing on lots of people's minds now is abortion and whether a new conservative judge could tip the balance against Roe v. Wade. I think that um, the the two uh, conservative women in Congress are are thought to be the last blockade against the anti-abortion justice. So we have to see what's going to happen there. It's definitely been one of the sticking points in thinking about what the impact could be of a more conservative court. There have been a lot of worries really since Roe v. Wade was uh, implemented on it would be eventually undone. And that's always been one of the parts of the Republican platform to see that undone. So if this jurist is more conservative leaning and there is a challenge and now there has to be, you know, a, some sort of challenge to come through the process. Um, it could be very interesting to see what the results of that would be. Um, what do you think, Ali? Yeah. I mean the, I, um, I kind of agree with both of you. I think the panic about it has been, um, a little bit. I, it's, it's, it's definitely decisions having to do with abortion. I think that's what mm-hmm. really kind of concerns me more than some of rather than like the question of like, of like, are they representing us fully in every single aspect? I think there are just certain issues that come to the forefront for me more than like, you know, whether or not like that's why in, in that sense, like a swing vote even just um, is less important to me so much as like we're having a more conservative person is less important to me so much as like what how does this affect my daily life ultimately then right. or the daily life of the American people um, rather than just representation so sorry when the you know the discussion around this kind of centers on the fact that this pick could have implications in judicial policy for the next 30, 40 years beyond even the presidency of Trump. So it's almost like his legacy will remain even after he's out of office. And we don't know what cases are going to come down the line. I feel like there are a lot of things brewing. There are a lot of Mm -hmm. things in circuit courts and in appellate courts that could eventually get to the Supreme Court. And looking at those cases, there could be a lot of changes made. One of the things that I... In you know researching this, I talked to a representative, John Faso, who is uh, the Republican representing the congressional 19th district in uh, upstate New York, um, well in the Hudson Valley in the Catskills area. And there's this idea of you know not having jurists legislate from the bench, you know, creating policy from the their decisions on the court. And there are so many things that are left to interpretation. Their job is interpretation. And there's so many things that were written 100, 200, 300 years ago that we now have to make gel with modern times. And so it's almost like their role, even though they're not supposed to legislate, they do make policy, which then carries down through decisions across the country. Um, So it's a really precarious role for for jurists. And I'm, I'm interested to see how this next decision plays out and what it could potentially mean. Now, there are some potential nominees. There's a long list of potential nominees. Is there anyone that sticks out towards anyone um, so far? I haven't gotten a chance. To yeah, there, I'm not too so familiar many, with the list. <laughs> there's so many. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting, too, going into the next point where some are accusing the administration of actually trying to push Justice Kennedy to retire. Yeah, that was an interesting and shocking Mm -hmm. story. Uh, 
there was information that um, Kennedy was sort of assured that his legacy would remain intact if he retired, and some of Trump, the Trump Organization's business dealings sort of sweetened the deal for him, which is totally uh, outrageous and pretty illegal if it's true. One, Justice Kennedy's son, I believe, is an official at Deutsche Bank mm-hmm. and was instrumental in getting Trump very large sums of money. And so these business relationships that are coming to light, what impact have they had on this decision? And it's not unlike any administration to try to, you know, nudge a Supreme Court justice or influence a Supreme Court justice to retire. Um, But usually the justices are, you know, kind of they're above that. Right. (laughs) Or we would hope. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the kind of thing that if this were a quote unquote normal administration, that would be like a crazy conspiracy theory. You know, it would be like, what are you even talking about? But with the Trump organization, you never know. Mm, Yeah, you don't you don't know. And I wonder, you know, has any money exchanged hands? Has there been any? Hey, well, you know, we'll set you up with a cush position afterwards, because when you're a Supreme Court justice, you're a justice for life. You know, and that's kind of the idea that you spend out the rest of your days unless you become gravely ill or something like that you spend out the rest of your days on the court right. um, just as Scalia did you know he passed away on the court <laughs> so it is very interesting even though he's 81 you know it's interesting that he would step down during this administration giving a second pick to uh, this administration um, for the Supreme Court yeah it's also interesting um, you know Kennedy is thought to be the last real swing vote on the court but all of the judges are supposed to be a swing vote to some extent. You know, the, the court, we like to think highly of our Supreme Court. We like to think they are true judges. They're impartial. They're not guided totally by uh, by partisan politics, even though they're all essentially partisan picks by the president mm-hmm. in power. So as he leaves, we're really seeing a lot of partisanship on the court. And it's unclear what decisions are going to look like when every decision is a fight in that way. That's very true. We've seen a lot of split decisions recently, and we've seen the same people advocating for the dissenting opinions Mm -hmm. that are, you know, on these social issues. And we've seen the same people dissenting on the, you know, issues when they're more of a business strategy decision or, or something affecting that. And so I feel like even though they're not supposed to have really, um, partisan viewpoints, you know, obviously their judicial legacy spoke to whatever president nominated them in such a way that right. they would be placed on the court. So that, that you know, looking at these histories of who could possibly replace Kennedy will be very important in, in analyzing kind of what they'll do. But then you don't know what they're going to do when the case is before them. Right. Let's turn to Maryland now, where this week five newspaper staffers were killed in their newspaper office in Annapolis. A gunman with a history of harassment of employees at the Capitol Gazette entered in on Thursday <laughs> afternoon with a shotgun killing five people and injuring others. The paper caught attention not only because of the four journalists and one sales assistant who lost their lives on that day, but also because colleagues who weren't in the office came to report the story. And the Capitol Gazette released a paper the next day with its own story on the front page. Recently, former Breitbart editor Mayo Yiannopoulos came under fire for comments saying that, quote, I can't wait for vigilante squads to start gunning down journalists, end quote, to a newspaper reporter in a text message, according to The Observer. And many see this administration as hostile to media and the press, calling stories fake news when they unfavorably report on the president or the government. So first, I want to just get reactions to the story where reporters um, I know it it took me back to, mm. to it, it really, you know. 
was something that we always think about. You know, you think about when you get the hate tweets or you think about when, you know, you're getting yelled at in the field. But this is this hits home. Right. Yeah, it's incredibly sad. And it's, you know, journalism is a tough job. You know, it doesn't always seem that way because a lot of the time you're behind a computer, you're talking to people on the street. But it's a job that gets a lot of pushback. And its ultimate goal is to uh, to make it less easy for those in power to uh, share their narratives as they want. It's um you know, it's impressive and it's very sad that uh, the Post-Gazette put out a paper the next day. But I think it, it is impressive, but it's also like, I feel like it's exactly what any journalist would do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's exactly the motivation for why we do what we do is to cover the news and that was the news of the day right they just said we're not used to being the story but that's the case that they happen to be the story that day and i couldn't imagine while i know that some of my colleagues had been gunned down and others i didn't know what happened to them sitting in a press conference trying to ask questions right to to get the paper out um to get back to some semblance of of normal um do you think, does anybody think, or you know, maybe better asked, how does this culture of fake news, this culture of um, negative perceptions of the press from those in power affect actions like this? Are they directly related, indirectly related? What are your thoughts? Um, I'd be, I feel like I'm talking a lot. I'm, I'm curious <laughs> if either of uh, the other people yeah. uh, have thoughts. Um, for me, I think it makes me think about a lot of the lack of like freedom of the press in the rest of the world and how that kind of um, in particular kind of that and and these outcries of fake news, if you will, and, and kind of these distractions toward uh, against ultimately the freedom of the press going in a direction, a, a, a direction that is kind of undemocratic, ultimately, like it makes me worry about the function of our government and how we you know, as journalists can no longer really actually influence that or have in democratic influence in right. that sense. I think that is kind of one of the purposes of freedom of the press. So what I think about is that, you know, in a lot of places, especially, you know, in Central America, when we start talking about immigration, this will become more about relevant. But when we look at, you know, journalists that disappear, that is ultimately done by the government. But what I worry about is these proxy um, relationships that, you know, people like Milo have to our government and ultimately kind of encouraging these kinds of rogue behaviors. And Mm -hmm. it's like, and even the language behind of that being like rogue, you know, that it almost takes off responsibility from the government ultimately of like what this is doing to our sense of freedom of speech, the press and, and, and a way to exercise democracy. So I get very nervous. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I think we all do. I mean, my news organization put out a memo very quickly after the incident happened, talking about increasing security, mm. reminding us of security protocols. Mm-hmm. You know, we go out in the field every day. We have to talk to strangers. You know, we go against that mantra every day as mm. reporters. And we do write things that challenge power. We do write things sometimes covering the worst moments of people's lives. Right. And we do, by nature of doing our jobs, incite things. So I, it's hard to say if these incidents will change how we report or mm-hmm. if 
we're just going into an age where, like other countries in the world, this becomes more routine. Right. Um, and, and what does that say for a free press? Sidebar in this sense, but very relevant to this. I had a professor who, when he was working in Afghanistan reporting, it was right at the peak of the war, if you will, so early 2000s. And he had to call Lloyd's Bank about getting insurance for like getting kidnapped and wow. stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so yeah. thinking about freedom of the press, how does your like how do we as journalists, how does our security protocol change? And, you know, and how does that look then? You know, what does that say about ultimately like the freedom of the country? Right. So if you're taking that's a very extreme example, but just thinking about security, you know, mm-hmm. how far is this going to go? Mm-hmm. Is my question. Uh, it's a question we can't yeah. really answer. Mm. And of course, you know, it, everything we're saying is definitely true, especially at this point in our politics. Of course, it's also a, a gun question. You know, yeah. he's uh-huh. a man who is obviously disturbed, who had a vendetta against the newspaper and had repeatedly sort of targeted them in a, um, in a, you know, internet campaign against them. How how was he able to acquire a weapon, such a deadly weapon, and you know enter easily? So, well, that it always goes back to that gun question and the thought that people can buy guns and then something can happen and those guns be used in an event like this. But there's no way under our current legislation, under our current policy, to prevent. Right. that from happening at all because you don't want to you can't predict if somebody's going to use that rifle to shoot a deer or shoot five people right. in the newsroom we don't have an ability to see that future so our policy is to assume the best intentions yeah. of people and is that problematic considering the amount of gun violence we've had here in this country right so i think that you know as as journalists it's important that we we remember those five people and and we continue to do the work that those Gazette journalists did and that we all do across the country and around the world to protect the free press and to hold people accountable and to challenge power. You know, it, it can't stop. And unfortunately, it just may be more dangerous than ever. Um, Yesterday, communities across the country rallied for rights of immigration and families and to speak out against the zero tolerance immigration policies that caused around 2000 children to be separated and detained in facilities around the country. Around 350 children have been detained in Harlem facilities since the zero tolerance policy became enforced. Reports indicate that facilities like it around the country have more than 2000 immigrant children whose parents are either held in other facilities or have already been deported. President Trump signed an executive order to reunite children, but logistics issues could be a barrier in that happening quickly. Um, First of all, I want to ask about the protests, because it seems like every few weeks we're covering a mass large scale protest in this country, whether it's for women's rights or anti-gun and now immigration. What does it say that we are in this constant state of protest in America? It either means that something's very wrong or that the people are doing something right. Maybe both. Or maybe both. (laughs) It's, uh, It's good to see people in the streets when they know something's wrong. It's it's a little worrying when nobody has anything to say. Yeah. I think with with immigration especially, um, this issue has really come to light. We had a guest on last week to kind of talk about um, front lines of the border and how these policies are, one, long-lasting. They're not new, but two, 
how just inhumane they are. Right. Um, and you hear stories about how these children have been treated in uh, detention facilities. I know even um, speaking with Genesec Gutierrez, who was an, is an activist, a trans woman activist, speaking about the treatment of trans women in detention camps um, a couple of years ago when she interrupted President Obama at the White House Pride Dinner. So this has been a part of our national conversation for a long time. It's just now become more visible. And I think because it's affecting children mm-hmm. and it's separating families, it kind of goes against one of those core American values. Um, but this is not new. So what do we do to change this outrage into action if it is something that we as a country believe doesn't reflect our values? Right. What do you think, Ellie? You know, um, a lot of people in, in terms of like people that I've worked in the past and people that I've worked with currently, it, a lot of it means working at the border um, and volunteering in any which way that you can um, in terms of whether it be at separation, like uh, detention centers for children. Um, you know, if you have, you know, higher education and this kind of stuff, I know a lot of lawyers that spend, you know, months and months and months at with no pay doing that kind of work um, and volunteers and as well as, you know, people that just do $12 an hour for 12 hours a day, you know, nonstop work, especially when it comes to um, working hotlines and also um, reuniting families, which can be damn near impossible, especially when the child is an 18 month old and doesn't know their parents' first names. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's that, you know, it's a lot of that on the ground work. It's a lot of resistance work at the border or something. And then also, well, what does it mean as New Yorkers? You know, does it mean working at these detention centers? Does it mean offering your services if you are a lawyer or a reporter? Right. You know, or so fostering kids. Fostering yeah. children. I mean, something that I do worry about, and I will say this about fostering children, is that I've seen reports of also foster parents refusing to give over the child back. Yeah. And that really upsets me. And, and it feels, it's very reminis- reminiscent of colonial tactics. And um, because then that just ultimately kind of turns into... It, it reads to me as like, you know, taking children away to really ultimately mm-hmm. take away power and, you know, who has influence over that child now. And so, you know, well intentions aside, you know, that's something that I think about a lot in terms of if you are as a listener going to make the choice of fostering, keep that in mind that that child is not yours, mm-hmm. you know, and the circumstances of fostering does not warrant you that right morally. Right. So sorry, but what were you going to say, Violet? Thank you for bringing that up. Oh, yeah. Um, what was I going to say? <laughs> um, I think, okay, so I think I'm not sure how our listeners can get involved in this, but I know that in at least one detention center, um, some women are organizing within the center and sort of taking it into their own hands on how are we going to be reunited with our children and how are we going to resist our treatment. Mm. And I think that's huge. You know, I think we have to support the agency of the people in these centers. Yes. So that that's all I've, I, I haven't gone past that. I'm not sure how we can best support them, but anyway. I think it's interesting, um, and we're about out of time for the segment, but I think it's interesting that this was able to happen. All these kids were able to be funneled into these various dissension centers around the yeah. country oftentimes without the municipal leaders knowing right. Bill de Blasio was quoted as saying he didn't know right. that they were holding, you know, 200 and something kids in a detention center. Right. In or they had been bussed over there. Yeah. yeah. Without his knowledge. And does the, you know, does the federal, federal government have an obligation to let these municipalities know? I guess they felt like they didn't. You right. Know? 
um, because it didn't happen. Sounds like government overreach to me. Mm, Okay. Let's move on to (laughs) a break. But yeah, that's, I mean, honestly, government outreach. That's kind of, that is is kind of what it is. And and that's what we've been campaigning. That's what people have been campaigning against, right? That's what the, that's what the Republicans didn't want to do. So, Coming up next, we are going to be joined by uh, Sarah, who's going to talk more about the field of forensic psychology. She'll give us some insight about her profession plays out in everyday life and more coming up. Make sure to check out RadioFreeBrooklyn.com, discovering all the shows we offer. And you can take us with you. Just download the Radio Free Brooklyn app in the App Store or Google Play. We'll be right back with more Objections to the Rule after this short music break.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Forensic psychology may not be a topic everyone is familiar with, but it has many applications in our society. We're joined with Sarah Kuttner, who explained more about this field of work. So, Violet, take it away. Sure. So, thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me today. Good to have you on. Um, so, if we can start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do, uh, what is forensic psychology and wh- what's your story? Okay. So I have a bachelor's in psychology. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm currently a graduate student at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in their forensic program. And I'll be graduating uh, this August. So I'll be able to enter the workforce pretty soon, which is exciting. Um, For the last part of my program, I'm currently an extern at a facility called Mental Health Association of Rockland, which is in Rockland County, New York. So also the Hudson Valley. So it's pretty local. And I'm in the recovery service program. So we are working with people who are struggling with substance abuse addiction and also possibly mental illness. Great. And um, what is forensic psychology? Just so we know what it is, what it is you're studying and what you do. Right. So I know like I was doing a lot of research and um, the definition itself, a lot of people have um, different things that they think go into forensic psychology, but... um, I think according to what the American Psychological Association says, basically forensic psychology is applying clinical concepts, uh, social research, and other um, parts of psychology into the legal field. So, for example, a big part of forensic psychologists' um, jobs in the court system is evaluations and assessments. So, for example, um, evaluating a defendant to see if they're competent to stand trial, which is a very hot topic because mm. um, especially if someone's not competent to stand trial, how long do you have to keep them until they are competent again to stand trial? Or um, if somebody is not guilty by reason of insanity, that's also an interesting topic in terms of evaluations. Um, in terms of social research, I think that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot in terms of the definition of uh, forensic psychology. Um, you don't have to say have to clinical psychology is a big part of it, but you don't have to be, for example, forensic uh, neuropsychologists are actually um, really important. So, for example, let's say uh, a defendant had a really serious traumatic brain injury. Um, let's say the prosecutor, the defendant who um, the defense lawyer is working with the defendant may ask a, f- a forensic neuropsychologist to come in and be an expert witness about um, traumatic brain injury and talk about maybe the part of the brain that was affected, would that be a change in their behavior? And as a result, was that um, the reason why they committed the crime? So it's a very broad definition. So it's really hard to actually say specific things because there's so many things that encompass what forensic psychology is. Right, that's so interesting. I feel like we we read about and we hear about forensic psychology Mm -hmm. a lot. It's in the popular media a lot. Absolutely, yeah, it is, definitely. TV shows. Do you feel like that's an accurate uh, understanding of what it is? No. no. You're <laughs> um, don't get me wrong. I love shows like Criminal Minds and things like that. I know a lot of oh, we, a lot of Minds. a lot of people do. Right, yeah. right. It's hard to believe it's still going. I think it's thirteen seasons yeah. now. It's still going. But um, it's really interesting you mentioned that because every time I mention the program I'm in, someone's like, "Oh, CSI," right? And I'm like, "One, no. that's forensic science. That has nothing to do with me." <laughs> Two, it's still not accurate anyway. Uh, <laughs> But um, what's really, really a big misconception is the idea that forensic psychologists are criminal profilers Mm -hmm. and that criminal profiler itself is a job. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not true. If anything, 
profiling really more has to do with law enforcement because let's say as a police officer you have to have those skills to know kind of maybe what a certain suspect could look like hopefully you have those skills yeah. right? hopefully yes you do have those skills yeah. but um so uh, in terms of that a forensic psychologist could be a consultant on a case in terms of if they could maybe help law enforcement um figure out what are the appropriate um interrogation tactics for questioning mm-hmm. or again you can look at the evidence i took uh for example i took uh, it was really interesting class uh profile of the homicidal offender so you learned how to create a suspect profile which is actually really difficult to do Mm. so basically um, the psychologist can look at the behavior that's left behind in the evidence Mm. so for example you can see is this possible suspect a very organized person meaning they knew what they were doing they had their weapon ready um they were they had a car and transferred the body to a different site as opposed to maybe oh they're a disorganized person so maybe it was more of a spur of the moment um acts and they maybe they didn't know what they were doing right Mm. that's interesting and so so on the one hand forensic psychologists can be instrumental in sort of setting up a criminal case and um getting the suspects together but i i know that uh forensic psychologists can also be key in overturning cases or rethinking cases that have already been made so i'm interested to hear uh a little bit about that. I know you you've mentioned to me the Innocence Project mm-hmm. being a place yeah. for uh, forensic psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, forensic like the the Innocence Project was was originally um, created by two lawyers, but it definitely is very important in psychology in terms of um, false confessions. Mm. So, as we know, that's also a really big topic as well. Um, why would somebody? Um, say I did something when they didn't commit that crime themselves. And actually, that's a really big topic with a lot of my professors that they study. Um, What are the reasons why someone would say that? For example, maybe you're under so much pressure because you're like maybe it's 24 hours straight. You're being interrogated and finally you just break down and say, yes, I did it because you just want it to end. And unfortunately, I feel like maybe at some point you start to feel like maybe you did commit that crime yourself. Mm. And that's very sad to hear. Um, so what the Innocence Project does is you have the qualification is you have to have DNA. Um, otherwise, they won't take your case. So in order to be exonerated, you have to have DNA. Um, and maybe they can show that maybe that's not the DNA that was there at the crime scene. Right. And unfortunately, right now, while exoneration rate isn't so high or people receiving clemency isn't so high, they actually have overturned a lot of cases. So it's kind of good to see that more... Um, hard evidence is being used, but DNA is still kind of an ick thing in the mm. court system. And what would be an FP's role in that in that uh, case or overturning that? Hmm, it's a really good question. Um, I guess you could say that maybe you mean if, like, let's say they're trying to appeal the case, right, or trying right. to show that someone made a false confession. Mm-hmm. Um, you could possibly talk. To to them about you know if they didn't commit the crime you could possibly talk to them about maybe what was their state of mind Mm -hmm. during the interrogation or kind of probe them to see maybe what they know of the details of the crime and see maybe if that matches what actually happened because what i've learned like you've heard of the central park five in cases like that right so what ended up happening with that the person who actually committed the crime was in prison right it was in jail um so i guess the important part would be to see um, what details of the crime do they actually know match what actually happened? Mm-hmm. The person who committed the crime who was not a member of the Central Park Five was already in prison at Correct. the time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're doing right now. You mentioned your externship. Mm-hmm. What's that look like? So where it's called the Recovery Services in the 
um, MHA of Rockland. We are associated with New York State, so we are get funding from New York State um, through Oasis, which is the Office of um, Alcohol and Substance uh, Abuse Services. Um, so what we do, what I'm learning how to do is, for example, um, how to do intakes, um, admissions, um, assessments. So basically, we want to see, will this person, are they eligible for our services? And if they are, what um, treatment plans would be appropriate for them. We also run a lot of group programs. So I'm learning how to facilitate those. So I'm learning how to actually be a clinician in individual sessions um, with clients and also how to lead groups. Mm. And also um, how to conduct urine samples and read toxicology reports because that's really important because you want to make sure, because we're an abstinence-based program. So there's um, zero tolerance policy for the use of alcohol or substances. So we want to make sure that the um, client is doing what they need to do to make it to recovery. Huh. Wow. That's an intense job, especially yeah. coming right out of school. Well, thankfully, it's right now it's just an externship, um, <laughs> but it definitely, it did hit you in the face since this is like, wow, this is my first like real clinical professional experience. And there's only four clinicians right now in the clinic. And one of them has about 45 persons on their caseload, which unfortunately for a lot of s- social agencies is That's pretty typical. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, a lot, but it is very much yeah. a part of the norm because yeah. there's so few clinicians. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I want to open it up too. if uh, any of other other hosts have questions for Sarah. There was one thing that kind of stuck out to me when you sure. were talking about TBIs. Mm-hmm. Um, we recently had the case with Aaron Hernandez, who was the um, football player who was convicted of murder. He eventually um, killed himself. Right. Um, and people, part of the conversation in that case was how much did his TBI, how much did his traumatic brain injury, he had a major brain injury right. that was discovered, you know, after he was, I mean, after he, he killed himself. Um, when you're thinking about traumatic brain injury, um, how often does that play in a part in criminal cases? Have you studied a lot of cases or interacted with a lot of cases? Uh, I don't know too much about it, but mm-hmm. I my criminal behavior class I took this semester, we touched on it a little bit. For example, I think there was a study in Australia that said that about 80% of inmates in one prison had some kind of experience with traumatic brain injury. So mm-hmm. they are very common. So while I don't necessarily have specific percentages, I wouldn't be surprised that they could play a part in how much was that actually why the crime was committed? Because it is hard to say how much of it is that person and how much of it is because of this injury. Well, and then does that injury, you know, does that somehow, I guess, invalidate a conviction or prevent a conviction? I mean, if they're suffering from this traumatic brain injury and they did commit a crime, should they be exonerated because of that injury? you know, I think is is a moral question. Is there any guidance that um, you guys have talked about in your program or kind of any thoughts behind that? Unfortunately, that's, uh, traumatic brain injury isn't something that I really learned about too much. Yeah. And I definitely think it's something I would love to do more research um, on because like you said, exoneration rates are kind of low already as yeah. it is. And TBI, can somebody be let go because of that? So what's something? Uh, one evaluation that you can do as a forensic psychologist, as I said before, was um, int- like intent, your mindset of the crime. So you'll look at that intent. Was there like mens rea? You ever heard of that? Right. So was there intent at that crime? So maybe you can look at the traumatic brain injury in terms of like maybe what part of the brain is associated with certain like emotions or functions and maybe see if that adds up or makes sense in terms of what happened during the events. Mm. 
So after this externship, uh, where do you think you would like to go? What would you like to, how would you like to use this education in forensic psychology? Well, to be a forensic psychologist, you, I have more schooling to go. Okay. So I, after this... Um, you a doctoral level program? Correct, okay. yeah. Yep. And you have the PhD level, which is more research-based. Then you have the PsyD program, which is where I want to go. So you, that's more clinician practitioners based. Mm. But you still have a lot of research because research is very important in psychology and especially forensic psychology. And after that, you have postdocs. So that's an internship for like another couple of um, years. And then um, it's... And then if you want to be licensed, of course, depending on the state you're in, you have to take the certification the whatever the board says you the qualifications that you need and some of my teachers not all of them were also i believe was it certified diplomats of the american professions professional of psychology american board of professional psychology specifically certified in forensic psychology while that's not necessary it shows that you are recognized nationally as somebody who is associated with forensic psychology Hmm. but in terms of right now um what i've seen with other people in my program or me is Right now, since I only have a master's degree, um, case management at in forensic level. So working with alternative to incarceration programs, basically mm-hmm. you're working, you're evaluating them. And if they qualify the, for the program, I guess you would lead them through the treatment and what that needs to be. And, you know, you since you're the case manager, you have individual sessions with them. And a few times a month, you check up on them, see how they're doing and how they're progressing. Um, but... Obviously, as I go on and more experience that I gain, I more opportunities will be open. Hmm. I, I'm interested to hear what research and what cases are particularly interesting to you. I know like a lot of things are new to the field of criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Well, surprisingly, in my program, we didn't really touch on serial killers that much. Oh, I know. Like, I, I feel like we're that's... all really excited. About <laughs> oh, <laughs> we can still talk about them. Don't worry. We can definitely get to that. Um, if we did touch on them, it was very briefly. But um, one case that I found really interesting in that homicide class I took is we watched a little um, segment on ever heard of the Iceman killer. I know. He, yeah. Um, Richard uh, Kuklinski. He was a contract killer. Um, and what was really interesting about him is this double life he led. His family had no idea. Like, for example, like he'd go out on Christmas and just leave and they had no idea where he was going. And, um, while he hasn't, the amount that he's been convicted for is pretty low, but it is estimated that he possibly maybe have killed around 200 people or so. Mm-hmm. And his, it was just his affect during the whole time. It was kind of just like flats. And a part of me was wondering, is that just he's just keeping it everything he's feeling or literally maybe does he not have any emotional connection to what he's experiencing? Um, and another class of mine, I took actually a psychology of terrorism class, which is actually really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So we learned about the cognitive and the psychosocial aspects of radicalization and terrorism. Um, we talked a little, we talked most a lot about um, Timothy McVeigh and Charles Manson mm-hmm. and why they did what they did. So those were also very interesting. I appreciate that they framed it in, you know, terms of not just like terrorism from you know eastern countries right. they also kind of frame oh no yeah people. we talked yeah. that uh, absolutely because that is definitely a misconception that yeah. it only comes from a certain part of the world yeah. you can obviously have homegrown terrorism absolutely and i think it would be interesting kind of looking at it um from the perspective of these mass shooters and how you know mm-hmm. psychosocial um behaviors and psychosocial evaluations can kind of determine what were the motivations of a person to engage right. in this behavior? Actually, it's interesting. I actually wrote a paper on mass shootings uh, during my time in my program. And they were different types of killers. I remember like one was revenge killing. So they felt like they were done wrong. So they mm-hmm. felt like they had to retaliate or someone had a mission mm-hmm. that they needed to carry out. Um, 
Who did I, I wrote my paper on um, Richard Speck in the sixties? He killed those nine nurses, and one of them ended up surviving and ended up testing testifying against him. What I thought was really interesting about him is, in as we see most of the time uh, in mass shootings, unfortunately, that the offender takes their life, so we're not able to bring them in and find out why they did what they did. Um, but we were actually able to catch him and really get inside his mind. So, for example, when he was younger, he had a really bad relationship with his mother. And eventually he developed a hatred for women. He, his marriage, I think he was married twice. They didn't go so well. So he really developed this misogynistic feeling towards women. And um, so, and to some extent, it really is interesting to see how someone was when they were younger. And if that has to do with their progression into maybe the act that they committed. Right. And we're talking about that all the time. You know, we were Absolutely. just talking about a revenge killing earlier yeah. today. Yeah. Is that? Absolutely. And um, I actually found a headline relating to that because I was thinking of it was um, Dr. Stephen Pitt. He was a forensic psychologist who was in, as a, involved as a consultant in the John Bennett case and the Columbine shooting case. And he was actually murdered earlier last month by someone he, he evaluated in a um, divorce dispute. Yeah. Oh, wow. He wow. testified against him. So I guess he, the suspect felt some sort of revenge that needed to be carried out. So as you said, it's, it can be dangerous depending what you're doing. I mean, none of my professors really ever experienced that. I think one of them said they had one feeling where they felt like they had to take self-defense after consulting with a, uh, an individual, but in the end, justice has to be served and we all have to speak our truth and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's something journalists and psychologists also have in common. Right. It's really interesting. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for having me. What it is, I feel a lot more um, understanding. I think it's such, especially as we have these discussions about criminality Mm -hmm. and the amount of you know mass shootings, the amount of you know just violence that we see and that's being Mm -hmm. adjudicated in our system. I feel like it's Mm -hmm. a vital part of helping get people get justice and understanding. Absolutely, and forensic psychology is still a very young field, so it has a lot more growth. But hopefully, we see a lot more good things to come. Yeah, glad we have good people doing it. Oh, thank, oh yeah. thanks, guys. Good luck with the rest thank part you. of your schooling. We're going to take a little bit of a break, listen to a bit more music, and when we come back, we'll talk about local news here on Objection to the Rules, so stay tuned.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Did you know that we have a newsletter? Each month we bring you the latest in RFB news, plus interviews, insider info on shows and more. Sign up today at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. You never know, you might win something too. So let's get into our local news. We've had a couple of topics. There was a big election this past week, the federal primary election. Um, and some people got upset. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that, Violet. Sure. So uh, this week was the con- congressional primary election for several New York City voting districts. Not all districts uh, voted this week, but many of them did. Um, and, you know, many incumbent establishment Democrats uh, won out yet again, um, uh, as was expected, you know. Um, but... Uh, there was one uh, upset in particular that shocked and encouraged a lot of left-leaning progressives uh, all over the country in addition to in New York. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a young activist and Bronx native of Puerto Rican descent, won out against Joe Crowley, who was a 10-term Democrat and someone who many people thought would go on to be a House Speaker. Um, so I'm interested to hear from you all a couple of things about this. First, um, do we think, is this upset really what it looks like? You know, people are saying, like, now that uh, she won, there's an opportunity for a lot of other left-leaning Democrats, Democratic Socialists, people who are uh, who are pushing a, a more left agenda than we're used to seeing from Democrats in Congress. They have a chance now. Is this really a signifier of change, or is this one incident? I'm hesitant to say that, oh, it's going to change. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of money in the Democratic Party, and though that money tends to go to establishment politicians. Um, we had a race in the 19th district where there were seven Democrats. A lot of them, you know, more on the progressive side, the one that won out was a Democrat who raised the most money. Mm-hmm. Um, and he raised the most money from establishment Democrats. Um progressive leaning packs and even some celebrities. So I think that the Bronx case, um, I think um, Ocasio-Campos case is not unique, but it is somewhat of an outlier. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that we will see these progressive candidates across the country because I don't think you can have somebody like Ocasio-Campos across the country. She's a unique person. She's a unique yeah. person. And she was able to compel this swell of support from a grassroots standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, she came from the Bernie campaign, you know, so she was kind of trained in that method. Right. So I, you know, I, it's for those people who are more left leaning, it might be hopeful. Um, but I wouldn't just say the establishment is falling just yet. Right. In my opinion. No, I agree with you. Um, and I think, even before then, she worked with the with actually Ted Kennedy, I think, um, mm-hmm. in her earlier earlier years, well before Bernie. And so, my feeling about it is that when it comes to grassroots work, and especially far left leaning, and also when it becomes the issue of your a woman of color is representing the district mm-hmm. that she came from, it becomes you know she is going to be changing you know the daily lives of a lot of people that she you know has empathized with and grew up with those are you know those of her community and so i think that is incredibly important but Ori's mm-hmm. right i don't think that that can be spread across the country because 
across the country, that's not the same case. And so, but I do think that is a really great model in terms of in general, whether or not it's more left leaning or more progressive or even, you know, in relative kind of moderate conservatism that, you know, grassroots campaigning ultimately these kinds of representatives will affect your daily life a lot more than, I mean, Trump is kind of questioning me when I say this, but, you know, affecting your daily life and so, um, and your taxes even. And so for me, I I think this is good, but it's not, you know, the beginning of a a tidal wave, if you will. Mm -hmm. I think there is an interesting thing too, because we are seeing, um, for example, uh, the woman um, is a Democrat who is poised to essentially win the governorship in Georgia, the first black woman yes. ever mm-hmm. yeah. in the state's history. So there are some glimmers of progressivism. I don't know how progressive her politics are, um, but there are some glimmers of shifts, right. um, especially around voters of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. the more voters of color that are coming out, they're supporting you know, people that hold their values and also represent them as communities. Mm. Voters Um, of color and compelling candidates of color. Yeah. 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 And so I think that's a really interesting, you know, idea. I've always, you know, kind of resisted that notion that you should vote for people because of their color, only because it's like the whole uh, affirmative action argument. Like you don't want... I, as a as a black person, a person of color, don't want to get things just because I'm black or a person of color. But at the same time, you realize that there needs to be a structural equalization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this district in Queens has been represented by non-people of color throughout history right. as it has changed and become more diverse. You know, the Bronx is, I'm sorry, I said Queens, I meant the Bronx. But anyway, it's become mm-hmm. more diverse over time. And so the fact that they are representing more of what the district looks like, mm. uh, I think is really important. Right. I I think you guys are right. I agree that it's, we've got to take this um, as an, as one case rather than necessarily a wave. But something I thought that was interesting was a lot of those incumbents did see a very close race this time. You know, my district is Yvette Clark, who uh, has a really, really strong base. You know, um, it came a lot from her mother, who was the first Caribbean American woman to uh, to be elected in her district mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, a very heavy Caribbean American, um, uh, you know, uh, base. But um, people are frustrated with Clark's uh, politics and a little bit with her, um, you know, her partnerships with different um, political powerhouses in Brooklyn and in New York. So she she saw, you know, it was very close for a long time in her race. She ultimately won out, but it was something like uh, 50, uh, 50 point something to 49 point uh-huh. something. So it'll be interesting to see that how that plays out. Um, another uh, question is, um, do we think we might see, uh, is this going to hurt us in any way? Um, some people are saying, you know, you may think that uh, Ocasio-Cortez is a symbol of um, something, some real change, or sea change, but others are saying that, you know, there are a lot of sort of hidden Republicans in some of these overwhelmingly blue districts. And someone like Ocasio-Cortez, who has politics that are far from centrist, um, might spur them to be more active than they have in the past. I don't know how likely that is in New York just because it's so blue. But might we see that in other places, like maybe Georgia? I think it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we 
look at who's been running in races across the country and we've seen white nationalist ideas, we've seen the Tea Party, we've seen mm-hmm. all of these things kind of brew up in response to more progressive politics. So I, I definitely think that it's something that, that could happen um, even if it doesn't happen here in New York City. It's definitely something that could happen in more you know, purple places mm-hmm. or more you know, places where there's going to be a compelling viewpoints on both sides of the aisle. So I guess the the uh, moral here is we can't rest on our laurels like many did during the Hillary campaign. Yes, those voter yeah. turnout numbers were somewhere higher, but still low. Right. And I think that's the most important thing. That's all the time that we have for this edition of Objection to the Rule. I thank you all so much for joining us. We're going to be off next week, but we will be back with more live news and talk from the Brooklyn Lens in two weeks. So have a great um holiday this week and yes i'm like what holiday is this (laughs) we'll see you soon on injections of the rule